listening to 99 Years, a black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. My name is Samuel James. There is a poster from 1917. It's of a gorilla. It's of a 10-foot-tall, wild-eyed, screaming, drooling, brown gorilla. It's holding a club in its right hand. Both its hand and the club are bloody. In its left arm, this berserk ape is carrying a woman. She is nude, covered only from the waist down by a bedsheet. She is posed in crisis. She is fair-haired, and she is white. The text at the top of the poster reads, Destroy this mad brute. It is a little shocking. The amount of aggression and racism in a single image is pretty overwhelming. The rough idea of the poster is probably familiar to you. Fifteen years later, the poster would inspire a movie called King Kong. But there are some confusing details in this poster that make it a little different. The text at the bottom of the poster tells you to enlist in the U.S. Army. The gorilla is standing on a shoreline labeled America, and across the water, off in the distance, there are fresh ruins of a city. Also, the gorilla is wearing a German helmet, and the gorilla has a blonde Kaiser mustache. The whole thing looks like some kind of rabid, nightmarish, nonsense, racist fever dream. And it is. But it was part of a plan. A very successful plan. Europe was a couple of years into World War I, and extremist white supremacist Woodrow Wilson had just won a second term as president. Americans were perfectly happy to stay out of Europe's war. There were countless anti-war pacifist groups active throughout the country. Wilson's campaign even ran on the motto, he kept us out of war. But that was not the real plan. Wilson knew, as he would later say to his Secretary of the Navy, quote, war means autocracy, end quote. He'd be able to do whatever he wanted if the U.S. got into World War I. And so he called up his old friend, George Creel. Like Wilson, Creel was a Southerner who'd grown up in an enslaver family. And he was an idea man. Wilson needed the country to agree with him. And so Creel embarked on what he called, quote, the fight for the minds of men, the conquest of their convictions, end quote. The Committee on Public Information, or the CPI, was formed. It was the first large-scale propaganda agency of the U.S. government, and that weird anti-black, anti-German guerrilla poster, that was a creation of the CPI. If you could get racists who hate Germans, how they hate black people, well, you'd be well on your way to your very own autocracy in no time. And that's what happened. Wilson turned just enough of his countrymen into bloodthirsty warmongers that we slid right into World War I. But that's not all. A nationwide campaign promoting racism had predictable effects. Mass white-on-black violence spread across the country. There was a sharp increase in lynchings. Black homes and businesses were burned to the ground, sometimes just because white men were afraid black men might enlist in the military. But contrary to popular belief, Autocracy does not stop with the already marginalized. 
Wilson would have newspapers shut down, his political opponents jailed. Americans were encouraged to inform on anyone they thought might be disloyal. People were arrested for speaking critically of the United States, even when that speaking happened inside their own homes. Vigilante groups sprang up across the country, including one called the American Protective League, an auxiliary of the Department of Justice, boasting 250,000 all-white, volunteer, dues-paying members. Wilson was so successful in his wartime campaign of white supremacy that whiteness became the default American identity. Now, it's not as though whiteness wasn't running every facet of the country, but for the first time, America was telling itself from coast to coast that it and all of its virtues were innately white. Any threat to the country was a threat to whiteness, and any threat to whiteness was a threat to the country. If you listen to the first two episodes of this podcast, then you know that threat was Jack Johnson's threat to those bedrooms. And that led to the unacceptable outcome of Benjamin Darling's descendants on Malaga Island. And so if virtue and patriotism and the very character of the United States of America could belong only to white men, then what choice could they possibly have but to destroy this mad brute? In 1919, Woodrow Wilson had a paralyzing stroke. Then, having largely ignored the global pandemic at the time, he was infected with a devastating bout of influenza. He also suffered a near-deadly urinary tract infection. While all of that must have been just terrible, it also meant he was no longer able to maintain his autocracy. Of course, this was long before the internet, TV, or even public radio, and this message wasn't just spread only from one outrageously racist poster. The key to building Wilson's autocracy was a second volunteer group. This one committed to giving short, four-minute-long speeches promoting Wilson's vision. They were called the Four Minute Men, and 75,000 of them were spread across the country delivering these short speeches at bars, restaurants, theaters, anywhere they could find large groups of people. One of the four Minutemen from the state of Maine was a man named DeForest Perkins. It was preferred that these local propagandists were as connected to their communities as possible, and Perkins definitely was that. He was a real estate developer and an educator. While serving as a four-minute man, Perkins was the superintendent of Portland Public Schools. He left that career to become the secretary of the Portland Chamber of Commerce. Soon after that, another group, of which he'd been a long-standing member, offered Perkins a leadership position, and he took it, becoming the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maine. The popular image of the KKK portrays them as inbred hinterlanders, barely able to put their banjos down long enough to pull on their hoods. But this is a classist reimagining. The truth is, Klansmen, like most terrorists, tended to be middle to upper middle class. They were white men who could afford to travel and pay dues. Like Perkins, they were often respected members of their communities. This is why they covered their faces. And so in September of 1923, when more than 7,000 Klansmen marched through the streets of Portland, Maine, 
In an attempt to install a white supremacist form of government, they weren't really on their own. From the moment the city manager system was concocted, it was being promoted by middle to upper middle class white supremacists, frequently in the Chamber of Commerce and backed by like-minded members of the local press. Portland was no different. Not only did the Portland Chamber of Commerce initiate the campaign for the city manager system, but the Portland Press-Herald, the local paper of record, hired two writers to produce daily propaganda supporting the racist scheme. The KKK in Maine was more or less disbanded by 1930, but the men under those hoods didn't just vanish. Their white supremacy didn't just disappear from their hearts, nor from the institutions they infected. Portland had been shifted from having accountable leadership in the form of a mayor that could be voted in or out to an unaccountable city manager, free to cover for a corrupt city council or an inept one, or blur the difference between the two. And believe it or not, that's never been a very popular idea amongst Portland's non-elite. There has been pushback against the city manager form of government in Portland since before it showed up 99 years ago and it has continued ever since. In 1968, the country as a whole was imploding, and in Portland, calls to return to a mayoral system were getting louder. The city council responded by changing the title of the chair of the council to mayor. Nothing had actually changed, except the definition of the word mayor. Normally, the chair rotated annually, so now it would appear as though Portland had a different mayor every year. And the trick worked for a while. Calls to return to the mayoral system were confused by replies of, well, actually, we already have a mayor. But, you know, you could refer to a fork as a spoon if you really want to, but good luck with that bowl of soup. In 2010, it was decided that the so-called mayor would no longer be a rotating position, but instead Portlanders would be able to vote for their symbolic leader. Again, nothing had fundamentally changed, but many voters were fooled into believing that they could now choose their city's chief executive. However, those powers remained with the city manager, and Portland's white supremacist form of government remained intact. The George Floyd uprisings brought thousands of Portlanders into the streets. Like many parts of the country, demonstrations were met with police violence. Demands were made. City leaders stood defiant. But eventually, a restructuring began. A part of this restructuring was the formation of a charter commission to examine the infrastructure of the city. Now, normally, a charter commission is accepted as routine, boring, government maintenance, almost completely unnoticed by the public. Initially, this charter had been opened in an effort to bring about clean elections. But Portland's form of government was fresh on the city's mind. A few months earlier, the Portland Press-Herald had published a column by local activist Nazreen Sheikh Youssef, asking that the Portland Chamber of Commerce acknowledge and apologize for their role establishing the city's white supremacist government. A representative of the chamber replied in another column, quote, Let me be clear. If the chamber of the 1920s ever colluded in any way with the Ku Klux Klan in an election a hundred years ago or otherwise, I, along with our full board and our CEO, 
absolutely condemn that. End quote. As that is neither an acknowledgement nor an apology, a line was retraced again in the sand. According to Maine state law, a 12-member charter commission must have nine elected commissioners and three commissioners appointed by the city council. For this new commission, the council would first appoint a former city councilor. The second appointee was a former school board member, both longtime members of Portland's political establishment, neither having run for an elected office in over a decade, and both white. The third, however, was a black man named Michael Cabetta. My name is Michael Cabetta, and uh, I'm a resident of Portland. Born in Washington, D.C., my family, my mom's side of my family came to the United States in the late 80s. My mother's dad was involved in a coup attempt in Ethiopia, which is part of the reason they left. And he, the coup attempt failed, he was killed in the attempt. A couple of la- years later in Ethiopia, another coup attempt succeeded, um, and my mom returned with me. I spent um, the next 15 years of my life in uh, Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, so until I turned 17. Then I came uh, back to the United States and uh, went to college at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, then went to um, law school at Boston College. I work at the ACLU of Maine. What I do is help to pass legislation that uh, strengthens and expands civil rights and civil liberties and uh, kill legislation that does the opposite. 23 candidates would campaign for the remaining nine seats. Even though Portland is an especially liberal city, not all of the candidates could be described that way. A local realtor and high school track coach campaigned in favor of the city manager form of government and against clean elections. A local wealthy restaurateur known to speak against workers' rights, campaigned in the name of the silent majority, and specifically to keep the city manager form of government. Another local man ran an unusually evasive campaign, largely avoiding declarative statements and interviews. As of this recording, his Facebook profile picture shows him wearing a shirt with the logo of the Three Percenters, a militia group, while still listed as a terrorist entity in Canada, has been dissolved in the United States since its members' participation in the January 6th attacks. In the especially liberal city of Portland, Maine, none of these candidates would win their races. But there are also three black candidates. Shea Stewart Boulay, originally from Chicago, best known for her popular blog, Black Girl in Maine, for which I am the staff writer, Yes, this charter was opened, reopened specifically to look at the issue of clean elections. But once you reopen it, you're not limited to that. It's not like, oh, that's the only thing we're going to do. Like, you really have the potential to create what the framework for how you want to operate. So I would hope that people will just be bold enough to do that. You know, I've been phrasing it as, let's look beyond this moment. Let's look at where we want to be in another 10 plus years, since it was 10 years um, since they last reopened this. Let's, let's be bold. Let's think about the changes that have happened and how we can include everybody in this process. Marcus Houston, born in the small town of Monmouth, Maine, and a local political organizer. The big things that uh, I sort of wanted to address on the Charter Commission when I first started running was definitely municipal clean elections. Um, 
that's something I really care about. I worked on politics at the state level and a lot of the candidates I worked with ran um, clean elections at the state level. And so I, I felt, felt strongly about having something like that more representative and getting big money out of politics um, at our municipal level was something that I really cared about a lot. And also the relationship between the mayor and the city manager to this day, I'm not really sure what the best way to figure that out is, but I do really think that there's something wrong there, so we should figure that out. And Nazreen Sheikh Youssef, the Somali-born author of the previously mentioned column. The mayor is not the person who, you know, running the city or doing the policy. It's the city manager, unelected city manager. And we looked out not only his history, John Jennett, but also the history of the city manager. And when we found out like how racist white supremacy is, we're like, okay, we need to do something about it. All three black candidates would win their races. And so for the first time in Portland's history, black people would be in that room, taking part in decisions that could potentially restructure the city and maybe even undo the institutionalized racism designed and implemented to keep us out of that room in the first place. But not just black people, not just the monolithic black that is so often used to minimize, degrade, and undermine us. No, these four black commissioners, Michael Cabetta, Shea Stewart-Boulay, Marcus Houston, and Nazreen Sheikh Youssef, together possess an expansive breadth of backgrounds, cultures, religions, and experiences that are really just a tiny glimpse of the ignored truth and immeasurable beauty of what it is to be black in America. But even that tiny glimpse would be too much for some in the especially liberal city of Portland, Maine. Because these four black commissioners would face struggles far beyond that of their white counterparts. This includes bad faith attacks from powerful community groups, recall attempts, overt defamation from members of the public, city officials, and the local press, and all of that before they'd even have their first meeting. And once the commission reached its decision, it would face not only much of the same, but a nearly half a million dollar openly racist campaign backed by the Portland Chamber of Commerce and funded by individuals and groups ranging from those losing Charter Commission candidates to multinational corporations. Next time on 99 Years. The angry black woman, is it because of my hijab? But I'm, now I'm trying to compare to Shea. I'm like, they're scared of her too. So it's like, it's not based on my, uh, my religion and based on being immigrant. So what reason they are scared of us? Like, why we scared them? 99 Years was co-produced by Flo Edwards and made with generous support from Maine Initiatives, the FUBU Fund, Maine Humanities Council, and with fiscal sponsorship through Indigo Arts Alliance.